Hi, this is Spotlight on France. I'm Alison Hurd. And I'm Sarah Elsis. Today is the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup here in France. We'll be hearing from some converts to women football and the difference in pay scales between men and women and even between women players. And France's top medical council recommends an end to reimbursing homeopathic medicine. Fans of homeopathy say they won't go down without a fight. We hear why. First, it's hot, very hot in France. Il fait donc déjà chaud, plus de 30 degrés nous Il a fait particulièrement chaud aujourd'hui, mais on attend encore plus chaud, c'est possible. La chaleur continue de monter en France, on a des c'est à la une évidemment cette canicule des nouvelles. La canicule et les thermomètres qui grimpent. La canicule meaning heat wave is all over the news here. Four regions are on red alert. Temperatures hit 45 degrees in some towns today, Friday. That's an all-time record. People are being asked to postpone leaving for their summer holidays this weekend especially on trains. Transport Minister Elizabeth Bourne warned that the tracks and the equipment are not built to withstand such high heat, and so they could break down. Some schools and daycare centres have closed. There's even a ban on transporting live animals. The government decided to postpone the brevet, which is the exam at the end of middle school. Now, the authorities are taking it all very seriously, which is normal, given the painful memories of the heat wave in August 2003, when 15,000 people died in the heat. Many of them were old people. They died at home or in old people's homes while their families were on holiday. French people and the government were basically caught unprepared. Some critics say the government is now overreacting, but better safe than sorry. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe said that this heat wave is a consequence of climate change, and he said the government would be stepping up its game in addressing the climate emergency. According to the Climate Council that was set up by the French government, this should have already been happening. The Haut Conseil pour le Climat produced its first report this week. It said that if France wants to meet its goals of zero emissions by 2050, it needs to do much more on cutting those emissions, notably in the transport sector. Efforts to cut emissions through taxation have run into problems, notably the yellow vest protests that were set off by the introduction of a tax on diesel that was later rolled back. The head of the council, Corinne Le Quéret, says that taxation still remains the best way to cut emissions, though she says it does need to be done equitably. Speaking to Christina Okello, she said the only way that France will meet its targets is to incorporate emissions reductions into every policy decision. So when laws are put in place, when big projects are approved, they should really come with a carbon budget in the same way that they come with a financial budget. And if that budget doesn't meet the uh, ambition, then it goes back to the drawing board. There have been months of the yellow vest protests. What does France need to do to ensure that its energy transition is not painful? Uh, the transition needs to be fair, otherwise it's not going to work. Answering to climate change, uh, it's not just about deploying renewable energy, it's about removing infrastructure that causes emission, and that infrastructure is a boiler, uh, heating in houses, and it touches everybody. So it has to have a price on carbon. There are many ways to put a price on carbon. The tax is the most efficient way, and obviously the tax in France that was just there hasn't worked, so it has to be revised in depth, and we propose a number of ways that it could be revised, including transparency, redistribution of the revenues. The government says it will give a first response to this report in early July and formally respond to the findings within six months ahead of next year's report. 
France is trying to give countries to the south of the Mediterranean a bit of a boost. And on Monday this week, Macron hosted a conference to increase cooperation between countries on both sides of the sea. Now, this kind of dialogue has existed since the 90s. There was the Barcelona process in 1995. That was folded into the Union for the Mediterranean, which was an initiative by then-President Nicolas Sarkozy in 2008. That was a much larger group made up of 43 countries. Macron's focus today is narrower. Uh, with what is called the 5 plus 5 group. So that's five European countries, France, Italy, Spain, Malta and Portugal, and five North African countries, Algeria, Libya, Mauritania, Morocco and Tunisia. The meeting was held in Marseille in the south. There were government officials, but also a lot of civil society members, including some young entrepreneurs who were launching projects to be funded by the European Union. Zinat Hansrod managed to catch Macron at the summit and get him to talk in English. That's quite something. First time we've had a French president who's quite so at ease in the English language. And he told her about some of these projects. They presented the series of projects on education, training, digital environment. And, and what we want to do in order to build this new Mediterranean narrative and this new Mediterranean framework is definitely to, to build up on concrete projects. And I, I think we have two pillars, youth and women. Look at the delegation we had from Mauritania from Italy, from Libya, this young guy of 23 years old. I mean, this is very impressive. And and you have there such an energy, such a willingness, precisely. But that's the problem. There's energy, there's impetus, but they don't have any means. First, what we want to do, precisely with these this first 14 projects, is to put money on these projects with the EIB, the ERBD, and the European Union. So in order to build up and to have a big acceleration with, with results. And second, what we want to do is as well to push and to increase progressively the different governments to work with cities, with these young people, with these entrepreneurs, because it's not 100% automatic in all these countries. So I think this, is, this new method by itself is very productive as well. And a follow-up in six months. And a follow-up in six months on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. France has an interest, of course, in making sure that other side of the sea thrives. Stable countries mean less radicalism, stability and development also means people would be more likely to stay at home instead of crossing over as immigrants to Europe. This week, we got a report that was prepared for the National Assembly on how the French public services are dealing with the threat of radicalization. So radicalization in the French public sector. Michael Fitzpatrick looks at the French press for us, and this is a story that got picked up by a lot of newspapers. Before we get into how it was covered, though, Michael, what was the impetus behind asking for this report in the first place? Uh, there have recently been cases of a driver of a public transport bus allegedly asking a woman, refusing a woman, admission to his bus because the skirt she was wearing was, in his estimation, too short. There is, of course, the debate about whether or not Muslim women are allowed into municipal swimming pools while wearing the body covering burkini, as it's called. So it's a very live issue. It's a very divisive one. And uh, these crucial services like the army, the police and prisons and education, for example, the parliamentarians felt it would be worth having an informed 
view of what the situation actually is. What was its conclusions, if we can talk broadly? Broadly, the situation seems to be not particularly preoccupying and not particularly serious. For example, they found that less than half a percent of soldiers uh, are suspected of radicalization, uh, that there are something like 30 individuals under suspicion in the entire police and gendarmerie force. So that's getting on for a quarter of a million people uh, with uh, sort of 30 individuals who are considered as potential suspects. The authors of the report did not seem to be uh, particularly perturbed by anything they discovered. So how was it received in the various French newspapers? Well, Le Monde more or less reflected uh, kind of uh, no panic, couple of problems, a bit of a tweak needed here, but uh, globally, uh, let's not get too worried. In sharp contrast, and perhaps not too surprisingly, uh, right-wing Le Figaro was very perturbed by this report. Using exactly the same statistics, exactly the same information, uh, they uh, were able to find a, a situation which was deeply worrying for the right-wing newspaper. They wrote a front-page editorial which warned of the dangers of militant and conquering Islam, which is making rapid strides on our soil. And that's a direct quote from the, uh, which is pretty divisive. Uh, a direct quote from the newspaper, not from the report itself. Oh, absolutely not. Once again, the report remains rather solid, 100 pages of parliamentary work, and uh, but of course interpreted very differently by a centrist newspaper, Le Monde, and a right-wing newspaper, Le Figaro. This maybe tells us more about attitudes towards Islam than it really does about radicalization in the public services. Yeah, when you talk about radicalization in contemporary France, you mean only one type of radicalization, and that is Islamic radicalization. But the authors are, are very careful to point out that, in fact, many of the attitudes that we have uh, learned to consider as representative of a radical attitude, a danger to the state, are anything but that. You can be enthusiastic about your religion to a, a degree which people might consider to be fundamentalist, but none of that is radical. Radicalization involves being a member of a group which advocates the violent overturn of the status quo. And so uh, you have a long way to go from being simply a believing Salafist, for example, to being a dangerous radical. Now for some football. It's the quarterfinal of the Women's World Cup today, Friday. France made it through. It's facing the U.S., the tournament's favorites. But France is playing at home, so as very motivated, it might have a chance. It should be quite a match. It's sold out, and so are the semifinal and the final games. And the Women's World Cup has really drawn much more attention than before here in France. The matches have been broadcast on TF1, the top TV channel, which has seen a surge in its audience, over 10 million viewers. That's nearly double the previous record for any women's match. Yeah, well, it does help that the tournament is being held here. Yeah, but there is also a sense that ideas of women's football are changing. Last weekend, I went to a bar in northern Paris to watch the France-Brazil game, which France won. It was broadcast on a big screen. I spoke to Adrien and Alex, 25 and 26 years old. They'd come to watch with their girlfriends. We wanted to come see um, this match because it's an important event. Have you been watching it from the beginning? French team, yes. Are you coming because you're here with female friends or girlfriends or would you have come by yourself? Maybe because I have a girlfriend who wants to watch, but I think it wouldn't be a problem. Oh! 
I don't think it wouldn't be a problem if uh, I asked my friend to come watch a, a family match. I would have watched the game, but like on TV. Yeah, yeah on TV yeah. or somewhere else. But his girlfriend and my girlfriend are friends, so they wanted to go here. Do you watch women's football normally? I went once for a game, like in a stadium. It was super cool, really. Like the ambience was like super warm, super nice. Do you normally go to men's football games? I stopped because now it's like I don't know too much. I don't even enjoy watching male football now. You can feel money behind that. Like I used to be a real football fan, and now I'm just giving up. But the, Every, women, but the women are interesting. They are interesting because they are teaching us like a new way. Even if there is an injury or something, they keep playing and uh, they don't stop the game every two minutes. Like, uh, oh come on, he touches me. No, oh, no way. Just play, play. Everyone's into it. It must be said, though, that the games so far have not been really been broadcast everywhere. This, where I was, was something of a hipster bar, which does tell you something. But it's already a first step, at least for Julie. She's 31 and plays football herself with a local club here in Paris. I'm glad to see that the uh, Women's World Cup in France is finally broadcast in bars. I mean, that's uh, quite a new thing. And I mean, if you want to get the real feel of a soccer game, uh, you have to go somewhere where are people watching I think the coverage is rather good. I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that there were relatively few sexist remarks on TV, that they covered the games with as much professionalism as they would cover male's game. I play soccer. I guess I earned my place when I was like maybe five, six, seven, eight. But I mean, at some point, there is the way people look at you. I moved abroad for middle school, thankfully, because I mean, maybe if I'd stayed in France for middle school, I, I would have given up. What are the judgments as a woman who plays football, as a girl? What do people say? I mean, of course, it was a lesbian sport. It shouldn't be an insult, but uh, <laughs> the fact is when you're 14, it is, and it's difficult to handle that. It's a lesbian sport, and it's like, uh, a guy sport, really, like, what are you doing? Do you want to be a guy? And so on. And the fact is, since I lived abroad between my age 10 and 14, uh, I lived in the United States, so I, I could really tell them, like, that criticism really did not make any sense to me after having lived four years in the United States, where football is really a women's sport. But if I hadn't had that perspective, maybe I would have given up football earlier. So football fans, women and men alike, are rooting for Les Bleus. As we record this episode, of course, we've got no idea how France will perform. They may well get knocked out in tonight's quarterfinal against the world champions. Yeah, but they, they made it this far with a team that's coached by Corinne Diac. She's a player herself. She was the captain of the French team for 10 years. She's the only woman who has the official diploma to coach football. Because you do need a diploma to be a coach in France. Of course. In 2014, she became the first woman to coach a men's professional team, Clermont Foot. She resigned in 2017 to coach the Women's World Cup team. Controversially, her first move was to choose a new captain. Until 2017, the captain was defender Wendy Renard. At 1.7 meters tall, she's the tallest player and perhaps the most popular player on the team. She's playing in her third World Cup. She's the captain for the Olympique Lyonnais. That's the most successful Division I women's football club in France. 
Several players on the France team play for Olympique Lyonnais, including Eugénie Le Sommer, France's top scoring player, and the captain of the World Cup team, Amandine Henry. And she, it turns out, is one of the highest paid women's football players in the world. Which, compared to men's players, let's be honest, is, is virtually nothing. Female players in France are paid, on average, 10 times less than their male equivalents. Yeah, and with no professional league, women are paid through the National Federation, and even so, 129 of the 290 players have no contract, so they need to have day jobs. And those with contracts, only half of them are full-time. But it turns out that French women players are doing better than many others elsewhere in the world. Yeah, their salaries are on average higher than those in the United States. That's saying something. The U.S. national team is trying to do something about that situation. They're suing U.S. soccer, that's the American Federation, for gender discrimination. Yeah, and Ada Hegerberg, who's the world's top-earning female football player, she plays for Olympique Lyonnais too, she said she was not playing for her national team, Norway, in this World Cup. This is a protest against the Norwegian Federation, which isn't doing enough for parity in the sport. So are the French women um, protesting as well? Well, they're not so active. The players themselves, those who've been asked about the salary discrepancies, have been keeping their heads down. They say they're focusing on their game. On an official level, we've heard from Brigitte Henriquez. She's the vice president of the French Football Federation. She said back in February that she prefers to work on getting more TV sponsorship for women's football. That will bring in more money for the team and solve the problem of salary inequalities. That's very pragmatic. There. Indeed, yeah. A French sports minister called on FIFA to do something symbolic, that's her word, to equalize the prize money between the men and the women, the winning team will get $4 million in this World Cup compared to the $38 million the French men's team got for winning the World Cup last year. There's still a long way to go. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want the money. Now to go back in time. <laughs> To June 28, 1919, so 100 years ago, at the Versailles Palace, Germany formally signed a peace agreement to end the First World War. It was known as the Treaty of Versailles, and it was meant to bring about peace in the world for years to come. It didn't quite work out that way. 20 years later, of course, the Second World War began, and some say it was a direct consequence of the harsh terms towards Germany in this treaty. It took several months to hammer out, following the armistice of November the 11th, 1918, which ended four years of bloody war across five continents. Remember, 10 million people were killed during that war. The Allied winners, led by France, the UK and the US, worked out the formal treaty, but they shut Germany out of the negotiations. And it included significant sanctions, including massive reparations due by Germany. A large part of its land was lost, as well as its colonies. When the treaty was signed, there were celebrations more or less across the continent. The war to end all wars was officially over. But the punishing terms which Germany called the diktat, ended up destabilizing the country. It fed into a sense of resentment and humiliation and ultimately led to the rise of Nazism and then the Second World War. The treaty did give birth to the predecessor of what is the United Nations today and the International Labour Organization, moving towards a more globalized, multilateral world. <laughs> Last 
Last week, we talked about how the French were the world's most skeptical nation over vaccines. And we heard from a couple of people who didn't vaccinate their children on the advice of their doctors, homeopathic doctors. Homeopathy is a system of alternative medicine based on herbal extracts. It was founded around 200 years ago by a German called Samuel Animan. He died here in France, which partly explains why it really took off here. Its most common form are these little white granules that you buy in tubes. It's basically sugar with a minuscule dose of some plant-based active ingredient. Recent studies show that about 70% of the French use some form of homeopathic remedies. Especially for aches and pains, like this woman, Natalie, who regularly uses it for herself and her eight-year-old. I went with her to the pharmacy. Natalie has come into her local pharmacy in Paris to buy Arnica, Arnica Montana, for her eight-year-old daughter who's hurt her foot. There's no prescription needed. It's as easy as buying cough sweets. The pharmacist hands her a green plastic tube containing little white granules. It costs two euros thirty-five. She gives her daughter three granules for the pain in her foot. The eight-year-old pops them into her mouth and lets them dissolve on her tongue. I don't like them much, but I'm used to it, she says. It takes about an hour to feel the effect. When she had her accident, I gave her a dose of Arnica 30CH straight away because it helped with a shock, both emotional and physical shock. The next day, she was less stressed about what had happened, and it helped relieve the pain. Natalie's been using homeopathy since she was a student to treat a whole range of things: stress, colds, to relieve symptoms from the menopause, for example. You need to have a good homeopath, though, who knows exactly what to prescribe to suit your symptoms. If they don't, it will have absolutely no effect. There won't be any side effects, but it won't work. Natalie found a good homeopath seven years ago and has been taking her daughter to see him since she was a baby. It's a totally different approach to medicine. More human. They take time to listen to you. They don't give you drugs that are too strong and don't continually prescribe antibiotics, and they take into account your child's personality. So it's all very different to conventional medicine. So she's convinced that homeopathy works for her, but within the medical profession, there's a lot of skepticism because there's really no clinical data that proves it works, right? Exactly. A year ago, 134 French doctors signed an open letter slamming homeopathy. They called it fake medicine, and they called homeopaths charlatans. Now, currently, the state health insurance will reimburse 30% of the cost of most homeopathic medicine, but critics say that's just not justified. France's medical council has been deliberating this issue for a year, and today, Friday, it officially said that that reimbursement should end. So, is it 
all fake medicine or homeopathic doctors quacks? Well, there are 5,000 qualified homeopathic doctors in France. They are doctors. They've been through the eight years of medical school. They then do additional training to become homeopaths. Most of them are working as regular GPs and especially pediatricians. I went to meet Dr. Hélène Renou. She's been practicing homeopathy with her patients now for more than 25 years. She has a regular surgery in the Paris suburbs with all the usual medical equipment. You've got the cat you've got the stethoscope, you've got the medical manuals. She says homeopathy is just one of many tools she uses. I treat all my patients from the baby to the grandmother for any kind of disease. And when I've, my patient is in front of me, I've got one more tool in my, my suitcase. Usually I decide to use this specific tool. But it, if I see that homeopathy is not able to treat the disease, is not the more appropriate treatment for this disease... Of course, I'm completely able of using the other tools I have. What about the medical students that you were with when you were in, like, the classic uh, French medical school? What did they think about your decision to study homeopathy? Actually, it's funny because before I decided to study homeopathy, I met several friends who told me, you should study homeopathy. It will really fit your expectations. But I have friends around me that still are friends and are not involved in homeopathy, I think most of the time we have very respectful relationships. We know each other. I know they're committed and they know I am and we respect each other. There's no problem with this. You know, the, the French medical doctors that claim against homeopathy, they are really a minority. Most of the people have relations that are very respectful and friendful. So last year there was this letter, this open letter, uh, signed by some 100 and nearly 124 French physicians. And basically they were saying that homeopathic medicine is rubbish and that homeopathic doctors, like yourself, mm. are quacks. Mm. There's no scientific proof to homeopathy. How does it feel being treated as a, a charlatan? Oh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And, you know, as president of uh, several associations, I receive a lot of letters from colleagues. And they are really, they are in grief. They said, but why do they treat me like this? I'm committed. I'm taking care of my patients. It's the meaning of all my life. It's so offensive. Don't they have a point, though, when they say that there is no scientific basis that homeopathy works because the dose is so minimal in these little granules that you offer people. How do you respond to that? On the um, physical point of view, the, the works are under process. And that's true that for the moment we have not definitive conclusion that we can say it works, but we cannot say it doesn't work because we have some findings that are very promising. And it's likely that in the years to come we will find more and more things that can give... A hint on what's, what's happening when we are giving homeopathic medicine. Because you said that you feel the majority of the medical profession is tolerant or accepting mm -hmm. of the fact that you practice alternative medicine. So how do you explain the fact that some doctors are so opposed? I think these people are not well in their practice. I think um, the medical general practice is not respected enough, at least in our country. And these people don't feel well. And when you feel bad, 
you put the problem on someone else. And this, the homeopath, is the perfect black sheep. I think these people, they would dream to ask more money for a consultation, to have more time for a consultation, to consider each patient as a single person and not as a global public health issue. Some people in the medical profession say, OK, maybe it does make patients feel better, but it's just this so-called placebo effect. Just because they believe in the doctor, it works, but it's all in the mind. What do you say to that? If placebo effect was so efficient, why don't everyone is using it? I think all the GPs are using placebo. Even if I am very, very warm with my patient, if I don't give the right remedy, it doesn't work. And once I find the right medicine for them, it works. So it makes the difference. But placebo effect is part of the medical act for everyone. It's not specific to homeopathy. So given the Medical Council's recommendation to stop reimbursing homeopathy, what's going to happen? Is the government going to take its advice? Well, it said it would follow the Medical Council's recommendation, so we might expect it will stop reimbursing. It would save the state some 126 million euros if it did do that. But when you compare that to the 20 billion that the state spends on reimbursing conventional medicine, it does seem like a drop in the ocean, right? Plus, Boiron, which is the French pharmaceutical company that manufactures homeopathic medicine and is Europe's biggest manufacturer, by the way, has said that ending reimbursement could lead to the loss of between 1,000 and 2,000 jobs here in France. That's a scary prospect compared to saving 126 million euros. But fans of homeopathy that I spoke to say they'll carry on using it, whether it's reimbursed or not, and they're calling for a parliamentary debate on the issue before the government makes its final decision. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a podcast from the English service of Radio France International. And if you like what you hear, why not tell us about it? Our email address is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find Spotlight on France on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It will help people find us. You can subscribe to the show there or on your favorite podcast platform. See you next Friday. Bye-bye.